The original version of this episode mischaracterized the recommendation for chemical DVT prophylaxis in acute stroke. The guidelines give prophylaxis with unfractionated heparin or low molecular rate heparin a 2B rating because the trial showed chemoprophylaxis lowered the risk of VTE, but it also increased risk for intracranial hemorrhage and extracranial bleeding. The authors note, while chemical prophylaxis may benefit some subgroups of patients, we lack prediction tools to identify them. So tonight we're talking a little bit about strokes and Moni, since we both love sports, I'm curious if you know which sport works the hardest to reduce strokes. Oh, God. I don't don't (laughs) want to know. I feel like this is going to be bad. It is. Golf. You don't want those penalty strokes. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're the worst. (laughs) The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. All right, welcome back to Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Moni Amin, which means we're in for another inpatient episode with my co-host, Dr. Meredith Trubit. How are you this evening? Doing well, how are you? Fantastic. On tonight's show, we discuss inpatient management of strokes and TIAs with our guest, Dr. Karima Benammer. In just a moment, our first-time producer, Caroline Coleman, will tell you a little bit more about our guest and the topic. But first, Meredith... Will you please remind the people in the audience what it is we do on this show? Sure, Moni, I'd love to. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And before we jump to our bio for our guests, we do want to just plug some prior episodes we did on um, that the Curbsiders team has put out before um, on TIAs and strokes. So check out episodes 164 and 290 if you want a little bit more in-depth information. But tonight we aim at kind of hitting the high um, yield pearls for the hospitalist specifically. And tonight we're super excited to have one of our graphic extraordinaires turned producer on her first episode. So Caroline, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and then about our guest tonight? Sure. I am finishing up my third year of residency at Emory in Atlanta in internal medicine, and I will be joining y'all at the Atlanta VA next year doing hospital medicine. Um, And tonight we are talking with um, Dr. Karima Benammer. We had a great conversation about TIAs and strokes. Uh, Dr. Benammer is a neurologist at Emory, and she is completely obsessed with the role of nutrition in brain health and with bringing attention to this important topic to the neurology and overall physician community. She is an educator at heart and works tirelessly to educate residents and students about the importance of this forgotten facet of neurologic care. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsliders.vcuhealth.org. Caroline, will you please take us to the first case from ClassTalk? Mrs. Toast is a 61-year-old with a past medical history of hyperlipidemia, coronary artery disease, who had a PCI two months ago, and an unprovoked DVT on lifelong anticoagulation, who presents with one day of right leg weakness. She was sitting at home and got up off the couch, and her right leg gave away and she fell to the floor. Her weakness has persisted, and she now presents for evaluation. Her current medications include aspirin 81 milligrams, clopidogrel 75 milligrams, Apixagant in 5 milligrams BID and a Torvastatin 20 milligrams daily. 
On arrival in the emergency department, the stroke team sees her as a stroke alert and her NIH stroke scale is six. So given this elevated NIH stroke scale, Dr. Benammer, how do you balance going straight to imaging versus needing to consider thrombolytics? And essentially, which one of those do you prioritize? Imaging is um, one of the very first steps that happens in a stroke alert. Um, you know, when a patient presents with acute, what we call, you know, BFAST positive symptoms, um, BFAST um stands for balance, eyesight, face droop, arm weakness, speech change, and time to call 911 or time to call a stroke alert if you're in the hospital. So if they're BFAST positive, um, you know, the sequence of events is that a stroke alert is called, they get um, examined, a very quick triage exam, um, vitals and blood sugar, and then straight to imaging. Uh, because you always have to rule out uh, a hemorrhage before being able to give thrombolytics. So the first first order is always a non-con head CT. Um, and then um, since the recent trials in 2015 with, for large vessel occlusions, a lot of times uh, patients will get CTA head and neck at the same time um, and CT perfusion, although that's not always the case. But a non-con head CT is... Um, a non-negotiable part of the stroke alert to rule out a hemorrhage. Um, you know, once a hemorrhage is ruled out, then you can consider thrombolytics. Um, kind of on, along those lines about thrombolytics, I think the best place to start is, especially in this case, like what are some contraindications or things that would make you not a candidate for TPA? Uh, being on anticoagulation um, is, um, you know, probably one of the biggest. So either having uh, taken a DOAC um, um, in the 24 hours before or being on Coumadin and having a, an INR that's more than 1.5. Um, that would be a, a contraindication. And then other contraindications are um, a recent stroke within the last three months, head trauma within the last three months, surgery within the last three months, or any kind of active bleeding like a GI bleed, hematuria, that kind of thing. This episode is sponsored by Glass Health. We are thrilled to have Glass as a sponsor. This is a new digital notebook designed for clinicians. With Glass, you can capture all the schemas, scripts, cases, and pearls that you encounter and leverage them to take better care of your patients. The notebook is perfect for organizing all those tutorials, papers, podcasts, photos, and slides that have been building up in your email and on your phone. Glass also has a community library with fantastic pages from clinicians around the world. The library is filled with dot phrase like clinical plans for common situations that you're going to encounter on the wards and in clinic. So try Glass for yourself today by visiting glass.health to keep all your medical knowledge in one place. And the pro version of Glass also gives you access to their AI features and medical knowledge visualizations. You can get one month of Glass Pro free by signing up at glass.health and using the code CURBSIDERS. That's glass.health and use the code CURBSIDERS. And then on the flip side, I think the next appropriate question is like, what are the sorts of things that put somebody into the TPA window, like time frame um, and stuff like that? Yeah. And then also, and then I think I also heard something about like the thrombectomy time frames have also maybe changed recently. So could you maybe go through those two things? Yeah. So um, for TPA, the the current guidelines are um, that if a patient has no contraindications um, and is a candidate, they can get it up to four four and a half hours after uh, last 
seen normal. The last known normal is a very important concept because, you know, a patient will go to bed at like 10 p.m. and wake up the next day at 8 a.m. and they already have symptoms. The symptoms started at 10 p.m. Not at, It's when they were less seen normal, uh, not at 8 a.m. when they discovered their deficits. So four and a half hours from last known normal um, for um, IVTPA. Um, and then for uh, thrombectomy, it's actually now up to 24 hours. Uh, but there are many things that go into that um, into that decision. Um, you know, how much salvage, we basically uh, use uh, an imaging algorithm to see how much salvageable tissue there is and decide whether they're good candidates or not for thrombectomy. When you say salvageable tissue, you mean like how much functionality they would be able to get back? So um, on imaging, when um, as part of a stroke alert, when they come, they get the CT head, CTA, head and neck, and CT perfusion. The CT perfusion will actually show you uh, various maps. Um, and within those maps, it will show you a core, um, uh, which is... Um, um, dead tissue, and then what's called a penumbra, which is tissue at risk, but actually not uh, not infarcted. Um, so if the there is a large mismatch between the core and the penumbra, then those are good candidates because there is a large tissue at risk that can be salvaged. But then if there is no mismatch and the core and the penumbra are the same, then that means that the tissue is already dead and there's nothing to salvage there. I see. So it's pretty much entirely like an imaging decision. Correct. Okay. Um, so for Miss Tose, who's had symptoms for the last 24 hours, um, let's say that wasn't the case for her. Let's say she came in six to eight hours or something like that. Um, you kind of mentioned this in the first answer when you said, you know, sometimes you would consider getting CTA head and neck with it, um, with them when they first come in. How do you make those decisions for that first CTA head and neck and kind of what's your thought process for that versus MRI and MRAs head and neck? So um, if they come within the window of an acute intervention, um, we will typically get a CTA head and neck. Um, if they come, you know, after 24 hours, which unfortunately still happens a lot, patients will wait at home and see if things get better and then come two days later. Then there is no value in getting a CTA head and neck emergently uh, because it's not going to change management. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is as far as CTA versus MRA, both have their pros and their cons. Um, so CTA, um, you know, is readily available. You know, you can get it in a couple minutes. Uh, you can get it easily, emergently, uh, pretty much everywhere in the U.S. Um, and it's very useful and has been actually the only modality used in the large randomized controlled trials for large vessel occlusions. So we use CTAs in those cases. Um, um, MRAs um, are actually... Uh, for MRA with contrast, uh, it has a very high sensitivity and specificity almost equal to CTA. Um, CTA is just slightly um, better. Um, we typically use um, the MRA um, if we don't need emergent vessel imaging. So if it's not an acute stroke patient, you know, uh, 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 an interventional 
candidate. Um, the MRA also has advantages in that sometimes you can actually get an MRA without needing to do contrast. It's called time of flight MRA. Um, and that's useful in patients who are either renal and should not be getting contrast or uh, patients who have allergy to contrasts. Um, so that's a, a good use for MRAs. Um, and then uh, there are actually certain MRA modalities, uh, like the what's called an MRA vessel wall modality um, that we use when we're suspecting vasculitis uh, that can give us really good information, almost equal to angio. Um, so pros and cons to each. When is then like an MRI brain by itself useful? Only when like the CT head doesn't show hemorrhage, but also they haven't shown the acute stroke yet or something else? You know, I, I think about getting an MRI in very practical terms. So if the patient's symptoms um, match what their CT is showing, let's say, and uh, me getting an MRI is not going to change their management, I will typically not get an MRI. Let's say a patient is anticoagulated and they come in and they have, you know, uh, right face, arm and leg weakness, and I see a lacoon that fits with that on the CT, they have AFib, they're already anticoagulated, the MRI is not going to change anything. Um, the MRI is really useful in um, um, in other times, and, and we actually use MRI a lot, in that um, it's a multimodality imaging. So, it, you know, um, when you get an MRI, you get multiple sequences, including diffusion imaging, which is the most sensitive imaging modality for uh, for ischemia. Uh, you get flare, you get what's called susceptibility imaging, looking at uh, microbleeds and um, uh, angiopathies and things like that. So the MRI gives a lot more information than what the CT does. Uh, the other thing that the MRI does is that the CT sometimes will not always show all the strokes and then you'll get an MRI and you see strokes everywhere. Well, that right there has changed your um, uh, assumptions that the mechanism of the stroke is embolic rather than thrombotic. And so, and that takes you down a, a particular pathway of treatment or workup. Yeah, I, I think that's really helpful in the sense that I frequently am not sure how useful having both of them is. And I, I appreciate sort of a framework to think about, you know, the practicality of it um, more than anything. Um, so let's say Miss Toast, you know, we have established that she's had a stroke. So let's just start with like kind of the basic management stuff. So obviously we're going to maintain her SATs greater than 94%, make sure that she's not hypoglycemic. Um, so beyond that, I, I think the next best place to start is the missing vital sign from that, which is the blood pressure. So um, hy permissive hypertension, I've obviously we've all heard of that. Um, are there any contraindications to that? And um, yeah, and for how long should she be um, kept like permissively hypertensive? So a hemorrhage, uh, you know, a hemorrhage is obviously a, a contraindication to that. So uh, permissive hypertension is, uh, I actually find that it's a, a fascinating um, concept, but it's, uh, the guidelines say that you um, have to allow 24 to 48 hours, up to 48 hours of permissive hypertension um, when patients come in with an acute stroke. Uh, and that's 48 hours after the onset of symptoms, right? So if a patient comes in and they've been sitting at home, uh, like many of my patients with three days of symptoms, and then they come in, you know, 
they're past that hyper permissive hypertension window. Uh, but if they come in immediately, permissive hypertension is actually very useful. It's basically allowing the body to heal itself. So, you know, you have um, cerebral autoregulation, which is um, when you're having a stroke, your body will essentially um, autoregulate um, to allow for perfusion of the brain. And so will increase your blood pressure. I always, you know, explain to my patients when, or their families when they come in that we want the blood pressure to be high initially because imagine you have a hose with a kink in it and you need to push pressure, water pressure through it, to push water through that hose so that, you know, when they're seeing, you know, on the monitors, high blood pressure, they don't, they don't get alarmed. Um, and so um, it's useful in basically salvaging what we were calling, what we were talking about earlier, the penumbra. Um, if there is any tissue at risk that has not infarcted yet, that's what the permissive hypertension is doing, is allowing that to not become infarcted uh, irreversibly. So f- the guidelines are 48 hours and then you can normalize it. Okay. And presumably if they're showing other signs of end organ damage, that would also be probably an indication to not, because cons- that would put them in the emergency categories. Correct. I really appreciate you saying that it counts from when s- onset of symptoms started, because that's usually my number one question, um, because I agree. I feel like we see it a lot in the hospital who've had two or three days of symptoms. And then um, I'm often like, well, do I allow them to be hypertensive? I don't know what's been happening the last two days. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, the, the other thing I would say, there is a tiny little caveat there, is that if patient is having what we call stuttering symptoms, meaning, you know, their symptoms are fluctuating, they come and go, they come and go with basically kind of like a tiny blood vessel that's opening and closing and opening and closing. In that case, we will let the blood pressure ride for up to five days. Okay. Keeping within the vital sign realm. Um, Let's talk a little bit also about temperatures and fevers that happen after the stroke and kind of the role for like antipyretics and kind of what we should be thinking about as the hospitalist taking care of those patients. Because I think that is definitely something that's within our realm to be managing. Yeah. So, um, you know, we know that um, um, a fever or or, you know, increased temperature from animal models um, is deleterious to the injured brain. Um, if you have a brain that is injured, um, either traumatic brain injury or stroke, um, and you add high temperature to that, it will make it worse. Um, so we know that from the animal data. And so we like to favor normothermia in patients who have any kind of brain injury. So th- there is this concept of, you know, having uh, what we call central fever, right? Or any type of brain injury can give you fever. And that is true. Um, having said that, um, if a patient with a stroke develops a fever, it's always important to look into infectious causes for that fever because um, up to 60% of patients will have an infectious compli- will have some kind of complication during their initial hospital stay, uh, their acute hospital stay, um, and the most common causes are uh, either a UTI or, an a- or a pneumonia. Um, a lot of times aspiration pneumonia because patients with stroke will have dysphagia and, you know, aspirate. Um, so, you know, it's important to look into that kind of, of, of scenario of complications um, in the setting of stroke and um, definitely favor normothermia. Okay. And that's helpful as well. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever spent enough time thinking about fever actually when it comes to strokes uh and then i think about like a patient that i've recently taken care of i've taken care of a few times uh and 
realize that this patient tends to fever and then I realize they do have some central, you know, nervous system issues. And so I kind of have to like slap myself and be like, no, no, that's what it is. Cause we've already, you know, ruled it out. Um, so ruled out everything else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a good kind of high points of some of the supportive care we should be providing probably to our stroke patients when they come in. So we'll kind of go into, um, I think at least for me, what I have a ton of questions on. So, um, so Miss Toast was already on aspirin, but we're going to put her to the side for a second. So like, let's say she's not on any aspirin, um, kind of, should it just be started as soon as she came in with signs of, um, stroke or do you wait for any imaging confirmation? Nope. No need to wait for any imaging confirmation. If you suspect a stroke, um, you start aspirin, um, within the first 24 to 48 hours, you can always stop it afterwards. But um, it's, it's, it's another actually quality metric to start aspirin within the first 24 to 48 hours if you have a clinical suspicion for stroke. And which dose? So I actually really like that question because every time my residents rotate with me, they go, which dose of aspirin? Um, so very simple, practical tips. Aspirin 81 for everybody, except if they have a fib and they are not candidates for anticoagulation, then you can use aspirin 325, um, which has been shown to have an effect for uh, stroke prevention in a fib. Not as good as anticoagulation, but better than um, better than 81. And so the loading dose that I sometimes see given is actually not necessary or like that could be an 81, that would still be sufficient? Yeah, no, no need for a loading dose, just start at 81 milligrams. And so then for our lady, Miss Toast, who had the previous um, issues, like the CAD is already on an aspirin, now coming in with a new stroke, do you go to like a higher dose? Like sometimes I see people do like the 162, like doubling the 81. Um, I feel like I was taught to just keep it at the 81. Um, and I feel like that's what you're going to say based on what you just said, but. Yeah. Yeah. So there is actually no data to support that if a patient had an asp a stroke on aspirin 81, that you would increase their aspirin to 325. I think it treats us more than it treats the patient to feel like we're doing something. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> Okay, so in and also in Miss Toast's case, uh, she was on a home DOAC, and she was also on clopidogrel. So, what do we do with those exactly before we get too much into some of the other questions I have? Uh, aspirin and Plavix can be continued. Um, you know, we don't typically stop aspirin or Plavix for anticoagulation. It really depends on the size of the stroke. The rule of thumb is if the stroke size is more than a third to the territory. The, a third of the MCA territory, then we hold anticoagulation uh, for 10 to 14 days, um, and then we resume it um, if it's a large stroke. Um, that's, you know, more than a third of the territory of the MCA. Um, other than that, you can continue it as well, assuming it's ischemic, of course. Yeah. And, and with the DOAC also, is there ever a situation, like, is there an indication that you would keep it regardless of the size or that's like a hard stop? Yeah, I mean, if it's a large stroke, if it's a large stroke, we, rec we, we, okay. we stop it. We recommend to stop the anticoagulation, whether it's a DOAC or Coumadin, uh, because the risk of hemorrhagic transformation is large. 
And is there any indication when you would restart them or... So typically, like I said, 10 to 14 days. Uh, sometimes we will repeat imaging um, and then make a decision based on that. Um, but a lot of times, it's it, within 10 to 14 days, you should be able to restart anticoagulation if it's a large stroke. Um, and then I think for her, she's already on the Plavix, so she would continue on the Plavix um, or the Clopidogrel. Let's say she wasn't... Um, on it and we may get to this in a little bit but i'm just curious would you just jump to adding it or are you going to work up kind of the etiologies first before you would add the dual antiplatelet yeah yeah so you know the the mainstay of doing the stroke workup actually is to figure out what the mechanism of the stroke was to know what the best treatment is so um you know the whole point of doing the mri the mra and the TTE or TEE or whatever it is that you're doing is to figure out the mechanism of the stroke. And stroke, uh, ischemic stroke, that is, uh, um, there was a, a trial um, that was called a TOAST trial, T-O-A-S-T, um, that categorized um, strokes into five, uh, five categories. So cardioembolic, large artery, um, atherosclerotic, small vessel disease, um, um, other determined etiology and then uh, unknown um, etiology. So these are the five classifications. The most common ones being the cardioembolic, the large artery, and the small vessel disease. And really, you know, when you think about it, the reason we do all this workup is because for cardioembolic strokes, you would have to anticoagulate them versus for other strokes, they would usually benefit from um, antiplatelet therapy. So um, that's the rationale behind doing the workup. Um, okay. So bringing us back in, uh, you just briefly touched on like what all the subcategories in, from the TOAST trial are. Um, I think the first three are pretty intuitive. So the large artery atherosclerotic events, cardioembolic and small vessel occlusion. The part that made a little bit less that I'm having a harder time keeping straight when I read the guidelines, um, uh, the stroke of other undetermined etiology versus the stroke of undetermined etiology. Like the, what's the difference between other and then not? So the, the st stroke of other determined etiology. So that's where you have vasculitis and dissection and the sickle cells stroke, that kind of thing. Um, and then the, uh, the, the unknown etiology is, you know, you have a, you have a 30 year old with no vascular risk factors who comes in with a stroke. That's the kind of scenario. Yeah. And along those lines, so keeping all those in mind, where do we start with our workup? Like, do we just do everything for everyone or, and then like, what do we do? Or we, are there things that help you decide like one thing versus the other? So t typically, um, all stroke patients, um, you know, assuming doing a workup is going to change their management, would benefit from a brain imaging modality, um, MRI much more than CT, 
Um, and then as far as vessel imaging, you would need some kind of vessel imaging of the head and neck. And you can use CTA head and neck or MRA head and neck, head and neck um, depending on your patient population and what your resources are. The next thing you need is an evaluation of the pump to those vessels, right? So you want a TTE if you have um, a suspicion that the mechanism of the stroke is embolic, then you would do a TEE. Or, you know, if you have a suspicion that um, the stroke is related to, for example, an endocarditis, uh, then you would also do a TEE. Uh, those would be the two indications for doing a TEE. And, and how do you base that decision on? Like, oh, I like what makes you suspicious? When you actually get a brain MRI, the way the strokes are um, distributed in the brain will give you uh, kind of an inkling of, as to what the mechanism is. So if you look at a diffusion-weighted uh, image um, on MRI and you see strokes in multiple vascular territories, that makes you think that it's cardioembolic because it's basically, you know, one clot that traveled up and then showered everywhere. You know, that would actually make me get a TEE. Um, if a patient is young um, and has uh, no vascular risk factors, I will get a TEE. Um, because I am hunting for the cause of the stroke. Basically, that's what it is. Um, I am hunting for a, a cause of the stroke that would made, make me change management. This podcast is brought to you by Grammarly. Folks, I sometimes struggle with tone. I am irony poisoned. I'm a child of the 90s. Uh, I also do a lot of self-deprecation. And so uh, sometimes my tone may not be as positive and as confident as I would like for it to be. But happily, Grammarly has some features to help me with that. Grammarly Premium's advanced tone suggestions help you communicate confidently and reframe your words to be more positive and productive. This way your team gets on the same page and gets your projects done on time. Confident communication suggestions help you build a strong relationship and get things done at work. So for example, instead of saying, we may want to consider providing an update, Grammarly would take that and filter back at you, we should consider providing an update and reframes things in a more positive and proactive way. It also reframes negative language so that you're more solution-focused and you can collaborate better with your team, your coworkers, and your clients. So rather than saying, this strategy isn't right for us, you would say this strategy needs to be different. So still, you're conveying the same information, but in a more positive and proactive way. So as I've said, we've, we've talked about Grammarly on the show before, and we know that can help with punctuation, it can help with grammar, it can help with word choice. Now it can help you with tone as well. It might help you communicate difficult news or just keep your team on track. When it comes to work, communication is key. Even if you don't have a writing job, you're still communicating on a daily basis. And Grammarly works where you do, so every important project gets done on time. Grammarly Premium's tone suggestions take your writing to the next level, keeping you focused and professional as you balance being direct and friendly while finding solutions with your team. Plus, Grammarly has a ton of other great features. They have things like advanced spelling, grammar, punctuation, and conciseness suggestions to ensure your writing is professional, mistake-free, and clear. The right tone can move any project forward when you get it just right with Grammarly. So go to Grammarly.com slash tone to download and learn more about Grammarly Premium's advanced tone suggestions. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash tone. And then along all of that, uh, frequently patients get a monitor of some kind on discharge? Correct. So they need to be on telemetry uh, while in the hospital. Um the patients that do get a monitor on discharge are the patients where we suspect a, an, a, an embolic etiology, but we were not able to capture AFib in the hospital. So then um, there's data that shows that prolonged monitoring actually increases your, your chances of capturing AFib. 
And then just to clarify, so let's say you have the patient who comes in and very clearly it's like a large vessel occlusion um, and there's nothing else like on the imaging that would suggest a cardioembolic pathway. Do you still go down that workup? Um, I would imagine you keep them on tele like or whatnot in the hospital, but are you still going down like the TTE, TEE yes. pathway? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. And that's because potentially they could have multiple etiologies that could have caused the stroke? So, you know, a large vessel occlusion, um, for for the scenario of a large vessel occlusion, um, you're basically looking for where that clot came from. Um, And so that's the purpose of doing, because having a large vessel occlusion by itself is actually not an indication for anticoagulating a patient with a stroke. But if you find an LV thrombus that caused that large vessel occlusion, then that's an indication. Or if you find that they have a fib and then that caused their large vessel occlusion, then that's an indication for anticoagulation. But just seeing an occlusion in a, in a, in a cranial vessel is actually not an indication. Okay. Um, if you can't tell, uh, Moni and I sometimes struggle to get um, specific echocardiograms done. And so we're just trying to see if there's any reason we could skip it. But it sounds like pretty much in any scenario, um, you would have to get it. Not a TEE. The, the TTE, the TTE has, yes, you get in every scenario. Uh, so transthoracic echo in every scenario. And then the trans, transesophageal echo, TEE, you would get in certain scenarios where you have a really high suspicion um, for an embolic etiology. And then, pres- yeah, and presumably with a bubble study, correct? Or yes. is that? Yep. Okay. Yeah, all TTEs are done with bubble study because um, the, the, the recommendations actually changed. The old recommendation used to be that there was no indication for PFO closure. And then um, there were um, recent, a couple recent trials that were done that showed that there was actually a benefit for PFO closure in a subset of patients. And so that's why TTEs and stroke are always done with a bubble study. So keeping within, I think, the etiologies that we just talked about, could we now kind of walk through how those different etiologies are going to change management while they are acutely in the hospital? Yeah. So um, let's say um, uh, a patient comes in with a stroke um, and uh, they're on telemetry and, um, you know, their telemetry picks up paroxysmal AFib. Um, that would be an indication for them to be started on anticoagulation rather than, a, uh, than an antiplatelet. Um, let's say a patient comes in with a stroke and we get, an, we get an MRI and then we see strokes in multiple vascular territories. Uh, we do a TTE and we do not find anything. The telly is not showing any AFib. Um, we go hunting and get a TEE and that shows, you know, uh, a um, LV thrombus or a source of embolus. That would be an indication for using anticoagulation rather than antiplatelets. Um, so it does actually change management in the acute setting. It's really helpful to go through each of those etiologies and talk a little bit about the treatment. I think we've talked about a lot of information so far. So Caroline, do you want to maybe just recap kind of the high points that we've talked about thus far? Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like for all comers, everyone's going to get a CT head when they come into the emergency room or when the stroke alert is called. If it's 
you know, within 24 hours, you can get the vessel imaging with a CTA uh, right off the bat to evaluate for immediate therapies if they're a thrombectomy candidate. And, you know, for the supportive management initially, the permissive hypertension will be for the first 24 to 48 hours, support that penumbra uh, tissue if it's there. We'll try to avoid fevers if we can, also trying just to support the damaged tissue. Um, and then talking into some of this immediate sort of med rec and um, medication decisions that we have to make, you know, it's pretty safe for all comers to just to be started on that aspirin 81 uh, they don't need the loading dose and they don't need to get a double dose if they were already on aspirin uh, when they had the stroke, 81 for all. Um, and then if they are on the DOAC and it's a large stroke, it's something over like a third of the size of the MCA, we'll hold the DOAC for 10 to 14 days. Um, but otherwise they can stay on it and they can stay on their Plavix as well. Uh, no need to save or to hold that. And uh, you know, we reviewed some of these immediately identifiable etiologies where we would start the DOAC again if there's no contraindications um, and can consider the plavix as well as if that's or the clopidogrel if that's indicated. This podcast is brought to you by Indeed. Think about someone who has changed your life for the better. How incredible would it be if your company could find more of those life-changing people right when you needed them? If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Here at The Curbsiders, one of the things that we love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place easy, especially with a feature like Instant Match. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Indeed does the hard work for you. Sponsor a job, and boom, Instant Match shows you candidates whose resume on Indeed fit your job description immediately after you post. With Instant Match, you can start hiring fast. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count, and that's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. Indeed knows that when you're doing everything for your company, you can't afford to overspend on hiring. If that'll interest you, as it should, visit Indeed.com slash internal medicine to start hiring now. That's Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I think the one thing that maybe kind of going over all of that uh, would be worthwhile is to talk a little bit too about the indications for dual antiplatelet therapy while the patient is in the hospital. So Karima, could you walk us through that? Yeah. So, um, you know, for the longest time in the stroke world, we shied away from dual antiplatelet therapy. And the reason for that is because there were many trials in the past that showed that dual antiplatelet therapy actually did not uh, caused an increase in bleeding risk without too much benefit um, in stroke prevention. The first indication um, for neurologists to start using dual antiplatelet therapy came from the SAMPRIS trial. Uh, SAMPRIS is spelled S-A-M-M-P-R-I-S. Um, so the SAMPRIS trial randomized patients to patients with moderate to severe intracranial atherosclerotic disease to aggressive medical management versus intracranial stenting. And... Um, 
um, the aggressive medical management arm was uh, using dual antiplatelet therapy, so aspirin and plavix for or clopid. Cl- aspirin and clopidogrel for 90 days. Um, They also had um, a health coach uh, who um, was basically coaching them for behavior change, medication, you know, being on top of their meds, nutrition, exercise, lifestyle factors. Um, The study had to be uh, stopped early because the medical management arm was doing much better than the stenting arm. Um, And you know, everybody took uh, as a conclusion from the SAMPRIS trial that patients with moderate to severe intracranial atherosclerotic disease needed to be on dual antiplatelet therapy for uh, for 90 days. In my mind, uh, the, the patients actually needed a health coach. <laughs> I feel like that's what made the, the biggest difference. But uh, the, the the indication for dual antiplatelet therapy f- is for symptomatic moderate to severe intracranial atherosclerotic disease for 90 days. Um, the second indication is um, there were a couple trials that came out um, in the last few years, the CHANCE trial um, and the POINT trial. So CHANCE looked at... Um, Patients with uh, mild stroke, they got dual antiplatelet therapy for 21 days. So they got a loading dose of clopidogrel of 300 milligrams, followed by aspirin plus uh, clopidogrel 75 for 21 days. Um, And uh, those patients did better than the patients who were only on monotherapy. So that was the CHANCE trial. And CHANCE stands for uh, clopidogrel in high-risk patients with acute non-disabling cerebrovascular events. And then um, in around 2018... um, uh, the POINT trial came out. Uh, so POINT stands for platelet-oriented inhibition in new TIA and minor ischemic stroke. Um, and it had a similar design to the CHANCE trial. And what they did was they gave a loading dose of 600 milligrams um, of uh, clopidogrel uh, <clears throat> with aspirin versus aspirin alone for 90 days. Um, and in that study, the patients who were on dual antiplatelet therapy did better than the patients. Pa- patients who were on aspirin alone. So TIA, high-risk TIA or stroke with uh, minor non-disabling deficits, dual antiplatelet therapy for 21 days. Um, Severe intracranial, um, moderate to severe uh, intracranial atherosclerotic disease that is symptomatic, dual antiplatelet therapy for 90 days. There is no indication for indefinite dual antiplatelet therapy in stroke at all, never. Uh, The longest we go is 90 days. Um, so these are really the only indications. I think I always have to remind myself, like, I think as a hospitalist, there's, it's not infrequent that I have to like look at a med rec and um, try to figure out why someone is on dual antiplatelet therapy and how long they've been on it. And to know that 90 days is like a hard stop is very helpful. So it's a hard stop for stroke. You know, sometimes they'll be on it for cardiac reasons. Um, and then, you know, we will tell the hospitalist that, you know, from our standpoint, they don't need it. But if the cardiologist needs it, that's a different story. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, okay. So Miss Toast, she was on DAPT with clopidogrel. Is there any situation in which we would maybe switch to something different like Ticagrelor? Is there any benefit or to that? Yeah. So, um, the only scenario where we would switch somebody from um, clopidogrel to ticagrelor is in what we call 
plavix resistance scenarios. Um, so there is a subset of patients um, who are uh, plavix non-responders. Um, and that is, uh, you know, a concept that we know exists for certain patient demographics or certain risk factors. Um, those patients have a higher proportion of having plavix, no response to plavix versus others. So you can actually get um, a plavix inhibition assay or it's called a P2Y12. I guess it's called different things in, in different hospitals. Um, but that would give you um, an idea of how much inhibition the plavix is causing in platelet aggregation. And if a patient is not having enough inhibition, then they would be candidates to switch from um, um, clopidogrel to tacagrelor. Okay. No, and, and, you know, resistance, not limited antibiotics. It's good to know. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and the last piece about clopidogrel before we um, get into some other stuff, uh, you know, EMRs just bombard you with interactions. And a lot of patients are on the clopidogrel, and those same patients are all also on omeprazole, PPI. And one of the pop-ups that I'm sure I've ignored like a thousand times is the interaction between the two. Could you maybe talk about how important or how much... I should not be clicking past that um, interaction. I click past that. <laughs> awesome. I click past that. No problem. <laughs> I appreciate the permission. <laughs> I feel like we've asked other guests similar questions and they also all say they click past it. So maybe we should stop asking about these. No, it br it Acknowledge. Great joy. Next. It brings me great joy to know that I have someone's permission. <laughs> so... Um, now we feel good about Ms. Toast leaving the hospital. So um, I think that usually there's a fair amount of counseling and other kind of last minute things you want to think about. Um, two are medically related. One is specifically probably your passion, I think, um, based on prior conversations. But um, the two that come up, I think, in reading a lot is the depression and the SSRI need and then um, treating their CPAP or treating their sleep apnea with getting them a CPAP. Um, but I think the other thing we talked about um, prior to the recording was kind of the impact on uh, brain health and nutrition. And so if you kind of want to talk about all of that for a few um, so that we can kind of have a better understanding what we should be counseling our patients on as they leave the hospital. Um, it's definitely a big passion of mine. <laughs> I could talk about this all day. So, you know, it's very easy to, um, um, see certain deficits in stroke patients. Like if somebody cannot move their arm or their leg or they're aphasic, it's right there in front of you and you can see it and you will get PT and OT to see them and you'll send them to rehab. Um, but there are these, what we call the invisible deficits, which are cognitive decline uh, and depression post-stroke. And Cognitive decline post-stroke is actually the most common cause of cognitive decline. You know, a lot of times pe people will hear, you know, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's. Post-stroke is actually m much more common. So in, in, in the U.S., the literature says that up to about 69% of stroke patients will have post-stroke cognitive decline, and about a third will have post-stroke depression. And these two um, are things that, you know, really... Um, go under the radar. Um, and they are huge burdens, uh, because they will 
prevent some, uh, you know, a stroke survivor from being able to get back to work, for example, or from being able to um, do what is required of them as far as taking their medications and, you know, lifestyle changes that they need to do to prevent another stroke from happening. You know, there are certain centers in the U.S. that are, uh, you know, looking at um, screening patients for these at uh, Cashlack. Uh, we did a study where we um, have a neuropsychologist who actually sees all stroke patients acutely and then uh, to, to basically uh, screen for these deficits and if they're present to make sure that these patients get the the treatment that they need as outpatient as far as cognitive therapy and, you know, um, treatment of depression and that kind of stuff. So that's as far as the, the, the invisible deficits. And then... Um, you know, one of the things that I think really does not get the the exposure that it should get is nutrition and its role in, you know, cardiovascular prevention. In my case, it's stroke prevention and in brain health in general. So there is a lot of data um, that actually shows that, uh, for example, the Mediterranean diet is... Um, very effective in preventing uh, recurrent stroke. So there was the PREDIMED trial. PREDIMED is spelled P-R-E-D-I-M-E-D. Um, and it was um, a trial where uh, they randomized patients to a low-fat diet versus Mediterranean diet supplemented with extra virgin olive oil or supplemented with nuts. Um, and they looked at their... Um, at the cardiovascular benefits and secondary prevention of MI stroke, it showed that there was a 30% decrease in risk of stroke for the Mediterranean group versus the low-fat group. The effect size of aspirin in stroke prevention is about 15%. Uh, Mediterranean diet is is 30%. The number needed to treat, um, you know, for aspirin um, and stroke prevention, for, for stroke and aspirin, it's 154 um, for Mediterranean diet, it's 60. So it is actually superior to the medications that we prescribe. And yet we do a very poor job in um, getting the patients the resources they need to be able to stick with um, with this kind of um, lifestyle change. So, you know, I'm on uh, a mission and I, I preach to whoever will listen to me, that we really need to do better by our patients um, in teaching them about the Mediterranean diet and other lifestyle changes. I keep saying the Mediterranean diet because that's where the most data is. Um, I think the other thing that to, to keep in mind is that, um, you know, when we're counseling our patients, we really have to be culturally cognizant. So, you know, I always say, you know, Mediterranean diet, you know, for, for me here in Atlanta, what does Mediterranean diet mean to my, you know, patient in inner city Atlanta? So you have to kind of tailor it to their culture um, and explain to them what the Mediterranean diet is about and how to go about changing their behavior. So very important to actually, you know, we did a study where we uh, counseled patients, acute stroke patients in the hospital. Uh, we educated them about the Mediterranean diet and then they were discharged and we followed, it was a feasibility study and we followed their um, weight, blood pressure and A1C 
Um, and the patients actually stuck with the diet for up to 90 days. We, we followed them for 90 days. They lost weight. They decreased their A1C. Uh, so they will do it. And I really believe that it's important to actually do it in the acute, acute phase. So for the hospitalists to do it, you know, a lot of times we think, oh, that's a clinic thing and, the, you know, they'll take care of it in the clinic. Uh, and for us, neurohospitalists too, right? Send to the stroke clinic. Patient, when they're in, in the hospital, they're really scared. And that would be the perfect time to educate them about what they can do to not have this happen to them again. So I feel like it's a missed opportunity that we need to take advantage of. Okay, Miss Toast, she's she's gone home after my bad joke about her diet. And uh, so we're going to call it a day for Miss Toast. Caroline, will you please tell us about our uh, next patient? This time we have Miss Tia. She is 62 years old. She has a past medical history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes. And she comes into the hospital with the complaint that this morning she had 90 minutes of left arm and left leg weakness that both spontaneously resolved on their own. Her head CT and MRI brain are both unremarkable. So briefly, is this episode, you know, does it qualify for a TIA? And then how do we characterize the severity in a way that's maybe comparable to the NIH we have for strokes? Um, so that's a really good question. The old definition of TIA was transient symptoms lasting less than 24 hours. Um, um, with the advent of the MRI and diffusion imaging, we started seeing a lot of patients who were having transient symptoms and had a positive diffusion imaging MRI. And so the, 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 the definition of TIA has actually... Uh, shifted from time-based to tissue-based. And that is actually one of the reasons we get, we get uh, you know, MRIs with diffusion imaging. Um, it's because we, will, we do not know whether this was a TIA or not until we actually get an MRI. And if she had transient symptoms and the MRI shows positive DWI, then that's a stroke. Um, if the DWI is negative, then that's a TIA. For her, we'll call her a TIA because the MRI isn't, didn't show anything. So how do you kind of walk through what would be her recommended treatment um, for her TIA? So the, the, the workup for TIA is the exact same workup as for stroke because it's essentially right, a, a warning sign, right? It's telling you the, 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 the things that cause a TIA are the same things that cause a stroke. You were just lucky this time that you did not have irreversible brain damage. And so actually just this past week, the AHA and ASA guidelines, um, you know, came up with their latest guidelines for TIA workup. It's the exact same as, as for um, stroke. So, you know, brain imaging with MRI and MRA, head and neck or CTA, stroke, what we call stroke labs, which is a fasting lipid profile, a hemoglobin A1C and a TSH. And in certain populations, RPR, um, you know, and a B12 and a homocysteine, uh, but they get the exact same workup. Coming back to Ms. Tia um, and her case specifically, um, are there any scoring systems that you might use that might help um, kind of classify severity and who should be get like the workup that you just described inpatient or outpatient? So severity, you can use the AP, ABCD square score. Um, it's actually a, um, a very good tool um, to 
um, know whether a patient needs to be, for example, on dual, dual antiplatelet therapy or not for 21 days per the point trial, because the point trial showed that if they were a high-risk TIA, then they were good candidates for being started on dual antiplatelet therapy. And that is, you know, four and above. Um, so calculating that score is always um, useful. I was just curious, like, because some TIAs, I feel like, leave the... ER and get their like a rapid sequential workup. So is that also based on the ABCD squared score or is that um, off of some other like decision making pathway? You know, uh, so uh, I mean, where I am, uh, all TIAs go to the CDU and get get the entire workup in the CDU within 24 hours. I would think the only time that it that you could do it as outpatient is if this patient has amazing resources and they can get an MRI and, you know, it's seeing all of this stuff the next day and there are liable follow-ups, which almost never happens. Um, so typically they, they go to the, to the CDU and stay there for 24 hours. Yeah. That was sort of my sense when I was reading about these rapid outpatients, I was like, who, who does this happen for and where do I find that? Definitely not our cash lack. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not yeah, not mine either. <laughs> so obviously, after we've established that someone has had a TIA and we've gotten their workup, the next question is sort of what we do with their treatment. So I know some people get aspirin only and then some people get DAPT. So like what how do you make that decision? And then the three weeks thing, too. Right. So so that's your your ABCD score. Right. So if they are high risk, if their ABCD score is four and higher, then they get DAPT. Um, if it's a, a low score between zero and three, then they get aspirin alone. Uh, they all get statins um, and then they all get, um, you know, vascular risk factor modification. Um, you know, one of the things that um, we always we forget very often is that. Uh, patients don't know to measure their blood pressures on a regular basis. Uh, and so, you know, I wish we had a hemoglobin A1C for the blood pressure <laughs> to know where the blood pressure runs, but we don't. The only way for us to know where the blood pressure is running is to have a log of it. And so it's very important. And it's actually the most common risk factor for recurrent stroke or stroke after a TIA. So very important to control the blood pressure. Um, so I always educate my patients to get a blood pressure cuff and measure their blood pressure every single day. Um, so that they can get a log and take it to their primary care physician and work on that if it needs to be worked on. And then I also, of course, tell them about the Mediterranean diet, <laughs> about the falafel. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's like one of my favorite foods. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I, I think we've covered a lot of ground and I think I, all the ground we wanted to cover. So... I guess for this last section, would you just kind of give us some of your main take-home points, maybe like three or four take-home points um, that you would want the audience to go home with today? I would say uh, consider TIA and stroke as similar. Um, so uh, um, just because their symptoms resolve does not mean that they do not that they are not at risk. They are at high risk, and they need to get the exact same workup as a stroke patient. Um, the second take-home point is. Um, the entire reason we're doing the stroke workup is to figure out the mechanism of the stroke so that we can decide on um, whether we are anticoagulating or using antiplatelet therapy. And that decision gets made as in, in, inpatient. So if we do the indications for anticoagulation are AFib or um, 
uh, hypercoagulability, uh, you know, antiphospholipid syndrome and that kind of stuff, um, or finding an LV thrombus. Otherwise, patients will get uh, antiplatelet therapy. The decision for mono antiplatelet therapy versus dual antiplatelet therapy uh, is pretty easy. If they have symptomatic uh, severe intracranial atherosclerotic, moderate to severe intracranial atherosclerotic disease, they get dual antiplatelet therapy for 90 days. If they have a TIA that's a high risk um, with a high IBCD score of four or more, they get dual antiplatelet therapy for 21 days. And don't forget to screen for uh, depression. You know, I mean, I think cognitive screening a lot of times, you know, you probably would need the help of your friendly neurologists um, to help with that. But, you know, with a PHQ-9, it's very easy to screen for depression. And is there anything you'd like to plug other than the Mediterranean diet? (laughs) Um. You know, I mean, there are many things that promote brain health other than nutrition. Nutrition is one of my passions, but um, there are, you know, exercise, um, sleep, um, many things that that, uh, are important in education, in educating not only patients, but also ourselves in how to take care of our own brain. Um, So I blabber about brain health on my social media accounts. If you're interested in that for your patients or for yourself, uh, you can look me up, uh, Karima Benammer, MD, uh, the ones that are not locked. (laughs) The ones that are locked have all my kids' pictures on them. The accounts that are Karima Benammer MD on Twitter or on Instagram um, are where I will post uh, evidence-based data uh, because there is a lot of misinformation out there. So evidence-based data about how to promote brain health um, for the healthy adult as well for patients with neurological diseases. Awesome. Thank you so much, Karima. It's been so much fun talking to you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So Krima's um, here with us. We just recorded this great episode and we're going to kind of jump into our lightning round. Um, so we're going to ask you a few questions to kind of get to know you a little bit better. So Moni and I are sort of mixing this up a little bit and we're going to ask a similar question, but in a little bit different way. So we like to ask our residents when we're on service uh, about something that's bringing them joy in the last week so that they can kind of reflect on the things that are making them happy. So for you, what's making you happy this week? (laughs) What is making me happy is I just finished 15 days in a row of service and it is my second day off. (laughs) That's what's making me happy right now. (laughs) What What do you have planned for this glorious day or two that you have to yourself? Vegging. Not moving. <laughs> Netflix. <laughs> I, feel I respect like that. that started. Yeah, I feel like that started in residency and it never stopped. Like your single day off in that seven days and you would just like. Yeah. Lay back. <laughs> in neurology, so. we call it the refractory phase. <laughs> We're nerds. <laughs> I think we call it diastole. Um, uh, Karima, do you have anything planned out on Netflix to watch? So um, I actually just discovered Mo today. Apparently okay. it came out last year um, in August and I did not see it. Um, I f- watched the first episode today and I really liked it. So <laughs> I think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> awesome. Um, Moni, do you want to jump to Picks of the Week or do you want to ask anything else? 
No, I think uh, we'll do some picks of the week. So I am bringing back a tradition that I had before COVID and I had not done since COVID, which is I have an end of January party because we can all agree January is like the worst month. It's cold. It's gross outside. uh, And it happens to be championship weekend. So there'll be football and food and people that I like and Meredith. So (laughs) Meredith, what's your pick of the week? Um, So mine is, I was just in LA last week for my brother-in-law and now sister-in-law's wedding. And it was fabulous. I spent a day sitting on the beach, just reading a book and like watching the sunset. And it was the most magical thing I've done in a while. So um, no, not everyone can do that in Atlanta, but (laughs) it was great. Um, And yeah, I highly recommend if anyone can get out there and do that. So Caroline, do you have pick of the week before we move on? I have something that is bringing me joy on my social media feed. It is someone called Patty Gonia. They are a drag queen, but they focus on doing activism around like outdoors, um, like climate change, and then just queer activism as well. Um, but they do like amazing stuff. Like they'll make drag out of completely um, out of like trash from the ocean or they'll go repelling down the side of the mountain and complete drag. So just kind of bringing those two areas of activism together, but give them a follow Patty Gonia and they'll, they'll make you smile. That's awesome. Are they on like all the social media sites or I'm, I'm a kind of the Gen Z uh, millennial uh, sandwiching those two. So that TikTok and Instagram is what I know they're on, but um, okay. I think they're on other stuff too. Yeah. That dig at our age was unnecessary, Caroline. <laughs> I was trying to say I'm as old as you all, but uh, yeah. Right <laughs> all right. Good times. So this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Awesome. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we are committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Caroline Coleman, and to our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Dr. Moni Amin. I've been Caroline Coleman. And as always, I've been Meredith Trubit. Thank you and good night. <laughs>